You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9. The Bible says, pray then like this, all together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. How many of you are ready to see the Kansas City Chiefs win the uh, Super Bowl tonight? All right. All right. How many of you want the 49ers? Uh, How many of you are bitter? All right. We got that out of the way. All right. So now I'm going to ask you another question. Where do you sit on an airplane? What's your seat? Do, do, you, sit, do you sit in the window seat? Do, do you sit uh, on, the, on the aisle? Are you some crazy person that sits in the middle seat? This week I was flying. I, I, was, I had to go to California for a trustee meeting for the International Mission Board. And as I was flying back home, uh, there I was, and I had an aisle seat, and the, there was a person in the window seat, and the middle seat was empty. And, and this was at the Denver airport. Uh, we were flying back home to Orlando. And, uh, and everybody at the airport had these masks on because of, of the, uh, the, the virus, you know, that everyone's worried about getting. And, uh, and so there I was, and I saw this middle seat was empty, and I said, oh, Lord Jesus, please, this is a four-hour flight, please let that just stay open. And I said, Lord, also, if there is someone that sits there, may they not be someone with a mask coughing. And the plane was about to shut the door, and one last man, who was from China had a mask on, and he sat down next to me, and he started coughing. (laughs) And I prayed on that flight, but he told me he hadn't been in China, so we're all good. (laughs) We're all good. But where do you sit on an airplane? Where do you sit on the airplane? Well, according to uh, psychologists, where you sit actually says a lot about you. There was a study that was done by the University of Washington, Professor Jonathan Bricker, who, who said this, that if you sit on the window seat, you value privacy, you're a nester, where you can lay your pillow against a wall, you're a dreamer, you like to look out the window, and you are open to new experiences. So there is your psychoanalysis, all of you people that love the window seat. If you are cool with the middle seat, you are an extrovert and totally fine with social contact. I don't know about you, but oh, I can't do it. I just can't. You're, or you're considerate. Or he says you're the low man on the totem pole because if you're traveling with family or friends, you got the middle seat because you have the least amount of power or influence in your group or family. And he also said, or you're disorganized. You wait until the last minute to get your plane ticket. Now, if you choose the the aisle seat, you value freedom. You love to be able to get up and walk around whenever and not have to climb over anybody. You tend to be somewhat claustrophobic, or you're all business. You're not a dreamer. You're all about working. And you like to be in the power position. Well, my preference is the aisle seat. I know that probably shocked no one. 
I enjoy the autonomy and freedom and control of the ILC. I love the ability to get up and use the bathroom whenever I want. I have on my little watch, it says, if I sit longer than an hour, I have to get up. It tells me you've got to get up because you want to get your standing in for the day. And so I time myself. If I'm on a plane, I get up every hour, walk around, use the bathroom, do something. I love to do that. And I love to have the position of control. Now you say, Pastor, that that probably makes sense with your personality, but let's just be honest this morning. If we're all really honest, let's have honest time with Pastor Allen. We all love control. All of us deep down want to be in control. Well, this morning as we're going through the Lord's Prayer, maybe this is your first time with us this morning, uh, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and it's a very powerful prayer. Many people have memorized it. Many people have quoted it. Many people have prayed it. It is rich with biblical truth and great theology. It is the model prayer given to us by Jesus, who is God himself, and he is God telling us how to approach God. And, and it's really easy to say the words, but it's often hard for us to really comprehend the power behind those words because we don't understand the phrases. We just kind of say them. We mumble over them. We kind of just get through them. We don't even think about them. And, and yet, yet this, this prayer is so powerful and, and it assumes a lot of biblical knowledge. So what we've been doing, if you've been here these past few weeks, has been line upon line. We're going through each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and kind of seeing what the biblical um, knowledge is, what's the background to these phrases. And so this morning the phrase is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is, I think, the hardest prayer to pray. It is the hardest prayer to pray and really mean it, especially for those of us that are control freaks. But I want you to get this this is what this is about. And here, here's what Jesus is getting. The point of prayer is not to take control, but to relinquish control. It's not to get God to help our agenda, but to surrender and trust in His agenda. It is to say, your will be done. This is the heart of what prayer really is. It is saying, God, your will be be done. So let's look at three things real quick. Number one, what is God's will? That's a very good question, right? He says, your will be done. Well, what is God's will? And, and probably no doubt in your mind, you've, in your heart, you've, over the course of your life, you've asked God, what is your will? What is your will for my life? It is, it is a question that's at the heart of every believer. What does, what God do you want me to do? What is your will? Now, as we think of Scripture, biblically, I think that we can see God's will in, in two facets, two sides to God's will. One is God's decreed will, and the other one is God's desired will. So when we think about the word will of God, and we think of the whole of Scripture, first we think of God's decreed will, and that is what shall be. It is His sovereign will, His secret will, His hidden will. God's secret plan for everything that happens in the universe. God's sovereign control over all that comes to pass. So when we think about this, this is God's sovereign will that will happen, will come to pass no matter what. I believe that with all of my heart that God is absolutely, completely in control of the entire universe. I believe that. That nothing happens in this world that God doesn't know and that, that God doesn't will into existence. Now, it is secret because we do not know anything that God is going to do and cannot know anything that God has planned to do until it happens unless it's revealed to us in the Bible. Now, you say, Pastor, where do you get this from in Scripture? Well, let me just show you some passages. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. 
Here's what God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring to pass, I have purposed and I will do it. He says this is going to happen. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, In him, this is in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Kevin DeYoung says that God works out everything, big picture, little details, everything in between, according to his own good and sovereign purposes. So God has a decreed will of this is what is going to happen. Now, some of you already have questions in your mind. Well, if God has a decreed will and it's going to happen, then we're just living in a fatalistic society, case or sera, whatever will be, will be. It's uh, the whole concept of I'm just a robot. No, I want you to get this this morning, that God's sovereignty does not reduce our responsibility. We as human creatures created in the image of God, God has created us with the ability to choose to believe, to disobey, and respond with moral significance and consequences to our choice. So I want you to leave here with this. There is a God who is sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, you can't sleep at night. He is sovereign. His will is greater than our will. But yet he never restricts my will, and I cannot restrict his will. But as we think about God's will, we have, first, God's decreed will. This is what will happen. And then the second, as we think of Scripture... We think of God's desired will. This is what should be. His desired will. This is his moral will, his revealed will, his commanded will, his perceptive will. If God's will of decree is how things are or how things will be, then his will of desire is how things ought to be. So God's desired will is the way that God wants us to who are his creation, to live our lives. It is what he has commanded. So how do we know what God's will is? Well, he's revealed it to us. How do we know what his desired will is? He's revealed it to us in Scripture. The Ten Commandments. That's God's revealed will. He wants us to live this way. He doesn't want us dishonoring his name. He doesn't want us having other gods before him. He doesn't want us uh, uh, to, dis, uh, uh, to disrespect and to dishonor our parents. He does not want us to lie or to steal or to kill or to commit adultery. He, he doesn't want us to covet other people's things. The great commandment is that, that his will is that we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what God's revealed will is. God has revealed what his will is, his desired will in the word of God. Now, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a very important passage. Not everyone who, who says they're a Christian, not everyone who used Christianese, not everyone who does good things will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of God? That you repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. You can do God things, you can do good things, you can do great things, but if you don't know Jesus as your Savior... He doesn't know you because you've not done the will of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God. Many of you wonder, what's God's will for my life? Here it is, bingo, your sanctification, that you become more like Christ. You want to know what God's will is for your life if you're a Christian? That you be more like Jesus. And he says that, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That word sexual immorality is the word porneia. That you, basically, it's a junk drawer for any kind of sexual sin. So you say, well, pastor, I don't know. What is God's will for my life? Does God want me to live with my boyfriend and not be married? 
The answer is no. Does God want me to do this or to do that that I know is not right in his sight? Well, the will of God is is that you be more like Jesus. So at the very least, we know that he does not want us to be engaged in sexual sin. So does God want me to look at naked pictures on the computer? The answer is no. You want to know what God's will is? There it is. There's your sign. Let's go to the next verse. 1 John chapter 2 verse. See, I would thought I would have got an amen on that. There may be some conviction going on. 1 John chapter 2 verse 17. John says, God says through John, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, this is the, when, when the scripture is speaking about the will of God, this is God's revealed will. This is his desired will. Now hear what we know is the truth. If God's decreed will is what's going to happen. And God's desired will is what ought to happen. Here's what we have to understand. Some obey God's desired will and some disobey God's desired will. And every one of us in this room have disobeyed God's desired will. Right? The will of decree happens regardless. It it is done without fail. The will of desire is something that we sadly disobey. So the will of God's desire is shorthand for obedience to God's commands and walking in God's way. So that's what he's getting at with this. The Bible reveals to us God's desired moral will for his moral creatures, and the Word of God is the sufficient guide to know God's desired will. People say, I want to know God's will for my life. Well, let me tell you how you can understand what God wants for your life. You can find it through the Word of God. You can find it in God's Word. Now, you say, well, Pastor, how do I know whether to buy a blue car or a red car? Well, the Bible doesn't say you should, thou must buy a blue car, thus says the Lord, but common sense should tell you blue is greater than red. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it's, it's morally neutral. So you come to the conclusion, well, a blue car and a red car, it's morally neutral. So you say, well, maybe you have to decide, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't buy this, Blue car or red car, but maybe you have to think a little bit more. And you think, well, maybe the blue car uh, costs a lot more money than I can afford. And the red car doesn't cost as much money because who wants to drive a red car? (laughs) That was a joke. Kind of. (laughs) And so you look at Scripture. Well, the Scripture doesn't say you should buy a blue car over a red car, but the Bible does say that you need to be a good steward of your money. And, and the Bible does say that the, 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 the debtor is a slave to the lender. So if you get in a bunch of debt and you can't afford it, then biblical wisdom would say you probably, even though it's not the best color, you should probably get the red car. So what I'm getting at is that you can know God's will through, biblical, for the, through just the Bible. It says yes or no. Some things are black and white, but most of the, the, the things in our life is in the gray area. And so how do we discern it? Well, we use biblical wisdom. We take principles from God's word, or we pray about it, or we seek counsel from someone else who has wisdom, and and we let them speak in our life, and we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. But yet God wants us to know his desired will, and some things in our life we're never going to know. And sometimes God will allow us to make decisions that aren't sinful to make. You know, you may decide to go through this door instead of that door, and, and you followed God's path even though you made that decision because you were moving in what God wanted for your life and you weren't sinning against him deliberately. So there's a verse that I think is very interesting. It shows both God's desired will and his decreed will together. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Notice what the Bible says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's his decreed will. But the things that are revealed 
belong to us. That's his desired will and to our children forever that we should do the words of this law. Do you see that balance? The secret things are his decreed will. The things that have been revealed are his desired will. So God, listen, we have a God that's so awesome, so great, that he's going to work out all things together for our good, and we may not know how he's going to do it. But he also has a way for us to live that is for our good if we just live it. Why? Not because he's restricting Not because he's mean-spirited, but he does this because he's our father. Remember who we're talking to. And he cares for you, and he knows what's best for you, and he's, he's revealed what he wants for you in your life. So, back to the original question. Which will are we praying for? And I think, is it, are we praying for God's decreed will? God, we ask that your decreed will will happen. Or are we asking for God's desired will to happen? And I think, listen, you can say yes to both of those, but I think that there's a little qualifier in the verse that tells us what it is. And that's as you read what he says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The qualifier is this. God's will, his decreed will, is going to happen, and it happens both on heaven and on earth regardless of whether we pray for it or not. But in, Because we know... We know that that's going to happen. Now, in heaven, because what we're asking for is that you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, in heaven, God's decreed will and his desired will are perfectly and joyfully being done right now. The angels in heaven, all those saints that are in heaven, they're glorifying God, they're enjoying God, they're obeying God, they're living the way God designed, and they are flourishing in heaven. But we know one thing. That God's desired will is not being done perfectly or joyfully on the earth. Right now. So what Jesus is affirming is that God's desired will is not being done on earth. People are not glorifying God on earth through their trust and obedience as they are in heaven. So he's instructing us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God would change hearts and minds to trust and obey like the angels in heaven. And the first person is us. So the question now is this. We've discerned, what is he saying? Your will be done. This is your desired will. The second is, well, what does it mean to pray it for me? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to pray your will be done? Now, here's a big picture. Here's the, the great big picture of this, of this prayer. When we pray for uh, God's kingdom to come, and when we pray for it to come in its fullness, we know that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, the will of God will be perfectly and joyfully done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's coming a day. That's why we're praying your kingdom come, because we want God's kingdom to come now. But until then, we are called to, desire, to, to ask God to bring his desired will in our lives so that in every situation in our lives, and even in the lives of others, Around us, we want God's will to be done, his desired will to be done. So how does this happen? Two ways this affects us. First is this. When we pray this, it is an acknowledgement. When we pray, God, your will be done, it is an acknowledgement. It is a trust. When we say your will be done, we are acknowledging that his desired will is best for our lives and the world around us. When we say, God, we want your will to be done, we are acknowledging that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are better. We are acknowledging that we get more joy and delight in doing what God says than what we think and what our culture thinks. 
So when you and I pray, your kingdom come, we are essentially living out and practicing Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. One of my favorite passages. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So that's what it means. When you pray, your, your will be done, you're saying, God, I trust you with all my heart. I'm not leaning to my own thinking. I'm acknowledging you in every situation and everything in my life, and I know that when I do that, you're going to direct my paths. See, when you and I disobey God, you want to know why we disobey God? You want to know why it, we, we do this? It's because we believe in our hearts that we can get more joy out of disobedience than obedience. I mean, why do your kids disobey you? You tell them to do something, and they don't do it. Why? Because in their sophisticated minds, they believe that their way is better than your way. Now, maybe none of your kids ever disobey you, but mine sure do. And in their mind, they think, well, you know what, Daddy? This would have been better if you would have just let me eat as much ice cream as I want. It would be so much, it would be so much fun. Dad, if you would let me just stay out all night and play in the dark with knives, it would be fun. Oh, Dad, if you would just let me do this or let me do that, it would be a whole lot better than your way. That's what we do. So when we sin against God, we think, well, that our way is better than his way. We think that our way is going to have more joy, more fulfillment, more significance, more meaning in our lives if we do it our way. And you know what? I think that really the ultimate problem is we just don't trust God's way. You want to know why we don't trust God's way? Because we don't trust God. Because in our minds, we just don't think he's got the best for us. We look at what his will could be, and we're scared to death of it. That if I actually live this way, if I actually do what he says, is it really going to work out the way he says it's going to work out? I mean, if I'm really going to do that, is it really going to work? So we begin to think this way. And listen, what Jesus is saying is that when you say your will be done, we are saying, God, I trust you. I trust you that you have the best intentions for my life, that you have the best intentions for others around me, and that you love me. And you care for me. And I trust you. Now, you can say this prayer, your will be done, and not really love or trust God. You can, you can pray it with resentment and say, your will be done, but I don't like it. That's where some people are. God's will is being done in your life, and you're asking for God's will being done in your life, but you don't really like God's will. But you just you think, well, I better pray this because this is what people are supposed to do that believe in God. So, God, I, I, I say your will be done, but I don't like it. Or maybe you can pray this prayer not just with resentment, but you can pray it with resignation. And you say, you know what, your will be done because I can't do anything to stop it. That's where some people are. You know, well, God, you know what, your will be done because there's not a diddly squat that I can do to stop what's happening. Or you can pray this prayer with rejoicing, saying your will be done because I know that's what's best and that's what I want for my life and forever. There's a song that we used to sing here. It says this line, it says, it's my joy to say your will your way. See, we think that we have life figured out. Next week, I can't wait to talk to you about how when, when we pray, uh, how over the years, we, we thought when we were younger, we were smarter, but the older we get, we feel like that we're still dumb, that we were actually dumber when we were younger, but now that we're older, we have it all figured out. I'm going to explain that all next week. But we have in our sophisticated mindsets, just like our children, that we know what's best for us. But what we're praying when we pray your will be done is we are recognizing we don't know what's best for us. 
Elizabeth Elliot and her book, Through the Gates of Splendor. And if you don't know Elizabeth Elliot, her husband, Jim Elliot, was killed by the Akua Indians as a missionary in South America in the early 1950s. And Elizabeth Elliot, God has used to, to do some great things. But just think about that. If, if, if this tribe that is known for killing people that weren't from that tribe kills your husband, there would be a sense that you would ha- want something to happen, right? You would want some justice to be served. But yet what you're going to understand about Elizabeth Elliot is she actually went and stayed and continued to minister to those Indians, that Indian tribe that killed her husband. And now there is a flourishing church among those Indians today. But here's what she writes in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor. She says this, God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways to satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There's unbelief and there's even rebellion. But she says, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. And I will find rest nowhere but in His will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what He is up to. God is God. And His will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what He's up to. It's trusting. So when you say your will be done, you are trusting. Number two, you are aligning. There's an alignment that you obey. What does it mean to pray your will be done? It's an acknowledgement that you trust, and it's alignment that you obey. It is not enough just to acknowledge that God's will is better than your will. It's not enough to acknowledge that God's will is greater than your will. You have to align to it. You have to do it. I mean, no doubt. In your life, you've thought, well, God's will is the best will for me, and I'm happiest whenever I'm serving God, and I'm happiest when I'm obeying God, but yet you look at your life and you're not doing it. You're not obeying God. You're not serving God. Listen, to pray your will be done is to align your life to God's will. It is to not only trust God in the unknown, but it is to obey God in the known. And the known is what is revealed in his word. And so we are asking God, God, give me strength to obey your will on earth. I want to be in alignment. You know, when we were newly married, April and I, we we had a lot of our furniture and a lot of the stuff that we had was hand-me-downs. Can I get a witness on that? Anybody have a hand-me-down? Some of you say, I still got a hand-me-down. Well, one of the hand-me-downs we got was a washing machine. Now listen, they used, in the olden days, they made washing machines that lasted for years. Nowadays, they have washing machines that last for a couple years. Back in the olden days, in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s, when dinosaurs walked on the face of the earth, washing machines were made out of metal. And, and steel, hard, you know, hard forged steel. And so we had this washing machine, and what would happen is, is that every now and again, you would hear it go, boom, 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 boom. You, you know, have you ever heard yours? It's like this cacophony of just loud noises. And I mean, you would just think, I mean, it's just in there beating the, the snot out of, that's what we'd say in Kentucky, just beating the snot out of your clothes. Well, what you would have to do, what we would have to do is what, the reason why it would make all that noise and make all that racket is because it was out of alignment, The drum was out of alignment, and the reason that it happened is because the clothes were off-center. They weren't centered around 
the thing. So you, you either had too many clothes in there or you, you just put them all on one side and they just kind of got stuck on that side and so it just went around and around and it was out of alignment. And so what you'd have to do is you'd have to either take some clothes out or you'd have to shuffle the clothes to align around the center so that it would continue where it's supposed to be. Well, here's what I'm saying. The reason I'm giving you this goofy illustration I probably won't use again is this. Is that a lot of us, the reason why our life is kind of getting beat up is because we're not aligned. We're not aligned to where God wants us to be. See, when we pray God's will be done, we are relinquishing a sense of personal autonomy and control over our lives and situations, and we are aligning to God's. And when we get out of God's will, when we don't align to God's will, things break down. Things make noises. Things begin to fall apart. So when we say, God, your will be done, we're no longer asking God to line up with our plan and our agenda, but we want to align to his. We are going to obey his will, even if we don't understand it, and even if we don't like it. You know, the greatest struggle in my life has not always been trying to discern God's will. You know what the greatest struggle in my life has been as a Christian? is trying to discern and disown my own will. See, because if I'm honest, if you're honest, I would much rather my will be done in heaven as it's done on earth. I would much rather God do what I want him to do and, and make the world the way I would want it to be. But here's the thing. I'm not God. And I'm grateful that there are times that I willed something and wanted something and he didn't bring it to be. Aren't you glad? Thank God for unanswered prayers. But we are called to crucify our will to obey his will. And we need to learn to be content with his will. Now, that's what he's saying when we pray, your will be done. Is that it, we want God's desired will to be done in our lives that we trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Now you say, Pastor, that's great. And, and, and maybe some of you this morning are like, Pastor, I just want to know. I mean, this is a great sermon, but I just want to know, what is God's will for my life? And, and listen, you know what I found in life? You, you don't see God's will in the windshield. You see God's will in the rearview mirror. That often you don't see God's will looking to the horizon, but you see it looking behind your shoulder. And you say, you know what, there's where God's will was for my life. But while you're driving on that, if you get that illustration, while you're driving is you want to be on the road of God's word. And you say, I don't know what God's specific will is for my life. Well, listen, you obey what you do know. You trust what you do know, and God will reveal what you don't know. But how can I do that? Because some of you, maybe you're, you're faced with it this morning. You know what God's will is for your life, and you're not doing it. Or you're struggling to do it. And maybe some of you, you, there's a sin in your life or there's something going on in your life and you're trying to exert your will. How, the question is now, how can I pray God's will be done? How can I do that? Well, you know what I think makes this phrase so unique. It's, it's, I, I, of, all the Lord's, uh, of all the phrases in the Lord's Prayer, we have an example, a personal example of Jesus praying this own phrase in his life. It's the only one. It's found in, in at least three of the Gospels, three of the four Gospels, this, this phrase. But we're going to look at Luke's 
In Luke chapter 22, Jesus here is, is about to be arrested. He has just been with his disciples in the upper room. They, they just had the Passover feast. He just had the Lord's Supper. And Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what the Bible says. And when he withdrew from them, this is his disciples, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed. Here's what he prayed. You've probably heard this before. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You think about that. Here in this moment, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says that he was in agony. Continue the next verses. And there, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And him being in agony, prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was in so much physical, so much emotional pain, psychological pain, that the little small capillaries in his brow burst. And blood came out with his sweat. Have any of you ever done that? See, the agony that was coming to Jesus was because of the will of God for his life. You know that the Bible says it was the will of God to crush the son? It was the will of God for Jesus to go and die on the cross. But, but, but beyond just the physical of that, beyond the physical... Part of the cross is the spiritual, emotional part. Even beyond the emotional, it's the spiritual part. Because Jesus in this moment isn't just experiencing physical death. In this moment, Jesus on the cross is going to experience the wrath of God for our sins. We can't comprehend that because for us to comprehend what Jesus was feeling on that cross would take an eternity in hell to experience. See, no one would ever experience what Jesus experienced on that cross. You know, there have been people who have died for their faith. And many of them, if you read their stories, they are rejoicing on their way to the death. Why? Because in their death, if they were in Christ, the Holy Spirit was inside of them, strengthening them. But in this moment on the cross, Jesus experienced hell and separation so that the point that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't have the Holy Spirit comforting him on that cross because God treated him on that cross how you and I deserve to be treated. See, he would bear that. He who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus, in that garden, knowing what's to come, he knew the agony. He knew that if he obeyed God, it wouldn't be a blessing it would be a curse. You know, the interesting thing is that in, in, in the first Adam, Adam and Eve, God says, obey me and you'll be blessed. Obey me about a tree and you'll be blessed. You'll flourish. And what do they do? They disobey God. Here, God says to Jesus, obey me because of a tree. You won't be blessed. You'll be cursed. And Jesus here, when he says... Not my will, but your will be done. But he says, Father, if, it, if it's possible, let this pass cup from me. Jesus is not saying, I don't want to be obedient. Jesus is not saying, I don't want to submit. What he is saying is this, is that, Father, if there is another way, all things being equal, I would much rather not have to do it this way. But if you want me to do this, I will do it. 
Not my will, but your will be done. Because my will is to do your will. You know what I love about Jesus? He was honest. He was honest with his father. You know what I'm just share with you? It's good to be honest with God. You don't have to play games with God or charades with God. It's just good. If you're going through a situation where you're at your wit's end and you cry out to God and you scream to God and you even get upset with God, that's fine. But when you say your will be done and you rest in Him because you trust God's best intentions for your life, that's what you need to be because that's what Jesus did. Jesus knew what was coming and yet He said, not my will, but thy will be done. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, to pray, let your will be done. We are saying, God, I will obey you whether I like it or not. God, I'm going to trust you whether I understand it or not. The question is this. How in the Sam Hill can I trust and obey God like that? How? You only trust someone completely if you know that person loves you completely. See, the only way that we could ever acknowledge and align ourselves to the will of God is to experience and to know the love of God. Because when you know God loves you, when you know God is never going to let you down, that His intentions for you are the best, and you know that, you can obey. But how can you know that? You can only know that through the person of Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth. No one has ever loved you like Jesus. There is not a brother, sister, friend, or mother that loves you like Jesus loves you. Because Jesus completely obeyed God, completely submitted to the will of God, and all of hell was poured out on Him so that you and I can be saved. He took the fall. He took the guilt. He took the shame. You can only say your will be done when you look and think of Jesus. It's the only way. The only way that you'll ever say your will be done is that you think of Jesus. And when you do, you can say this, I will obey even if I don't agree with you. And I will obey even if I don't like it. And I will trust you even though I don't understand what you've sent to my life. Because I know you love me. See, if you say your will be done without looking to Jesus, you will say it with resentment. And you'll resent God. Or if you say your will be done without looking to Jesus, you will become numb towards God. But when you behold the cross, when you see what He did to save you, you will say, let your will be done. On the flight coming home, I had to fly from Denver to Orlando, from Los Angeles to Denver and Denver to Orlando. And on the flight from Los Angeles to Denver, there, there was a, a guy, and I was in my aisle seat, just in case you were wondering. There was a guy about two seats in front of me. In, in premium economy. I, I wasn't there. I, I was looking at it, but I wasn't there. And there was a guy that was there, and um, he was sitting in the wrong seat. He was sitting in the aisle seat. 
And, and I was watching. It's very fascinating. And the guy that was supposed to be in the aisle seat finally came through, and he saw a guy sitting in his seat. And for about a minute, this guy that was sitting in the wrong seat knew he was sitting in the wrong seat, played dumb. He just did. Oh, this is, I see. Oh, look here. Oh, I sat in the wrong seat. You knew you sat in the wrong seat. And this guy, he said, listen, I bought this aisle seat. You're, let me see your take. You're supposed to sit in the middle seat. And they went back and forth for a second. And this guy who sat in the wrong seat looked at this guy and he said, look, I cannot sit in the middle seat. Just can't do it. And you know what that guy did? He said, okay, you sit where you sit. I'll sit in the middle seat. I, I'm serious. I saw that take place. And this is, I'm, this is not a lie. And I said, there is no way in the world I would ever do that. <laughs> no way. No way. I paid for that sucker. <laughs> no way. Then the Holy Spirit convicted me. And, and I'm telling you, it reminded me of Jesus. Because Jesus paid for his seat. And I get to sit in it. 